Welcome to the 90 Minutes or Less Film Fest. My name is Sam Clements, and this is the podcast that celebrates films with a 90 minute or less runtime. In each episode, a guest will select a film and join me to add to our ongoing fictional film festival. Today, we're joined by Catherine Bray, writer, critic, director, producer, co-founder of the innovative production company Loop, half of the excellent film review publication Film of the Week, and most recently, co-host of the Not Another Fucking Elf podcast. Hello, Catherine. Hello, Sam Clements. That was a lovely CV pricey. I've come to this interview as a fan of your work and you have worked over so many projects and mediums. I wanted to just give them all a little shout out. Thank you. I think hearing it all read out like that is evident that I have absolutely no concentration span whatsoever. (laughs) (laughs) Just trying a bit of everything. Which is fun. It's incredible to me. I, I find it hard just to do this one podcast. But, um, you know, you've got so many things on the go. And, and I'm a fan of, uh, of what you do. I think most recently, Film of the Week, my favourite email newsletter. We should give a shout out to Guy Lodge, my co-conspirator on filmoftheweek.co.uk. Yeah, we just thought there is such a lot of stuff out there. What if we did something that just says, this is the one this week that we think is good. You may or may not agree, but just here's, here's one to focus on and we'll write about it uh, briefly. So I think there's some there's some creative DNA that we've got in common with 90 Minute Film Fest as well as this it's this idea that we haven't got we haven't got time to waste. Ours is one film a week, yours is films of 90 minutes or or less. It's a nod to the fact that we live in this incredibly crowded media landscape as they say in the trade bibles and we're all looking for a way to try and navigate that without as you say going mad with guilt that we're not consuming all of this stuff that all of this content that has been put together for us and i think it's a it's a way of taking a step back and doing something that feels a little bit more curatorial both both your project and mine I guess it brings us nicely onto Not Another Fucking Elf, which is an incredible name. What is the podcast about? Give us the elevator pitch. So myself and my buddy Paul Ridd were talking about Tolkien and we were thinking about all of the different sort of podcasts that are out there and what on earth could we possibly find to add to the sea of Tolkien podcasts and Lord of the Rings podcasts. And in particular, what struck us as an interesting way to approach it was a character by character approach whereby we look at different interpretations of each character. So there are so many Tolkien adaptations out there. Obviously, you've got the Peter Jackson films, you've got the like the 1981 BBC really revered radio adaptation, you've got the more recent circus audiobook, and there's also lots of more obscure ones so we take each character and look at how they've been interpreted by all the many different people who have played that character we've got clips and we look at kind of their place in pop culture as well so things like Gollum accepting his award at the MTV Movie Awards and it's a nice I think multimedia approach to to the Tolkien canon. Because of the Peter Jackson films not like no one had heard of the book or anything before then. But because of the, the legacy of the Jackson films, it has had this like extra sort of boost of life. And, and, you know, those films are so revered and 
the, the Hobbit films that came later, I guess, extended it even further. I think everybody is familiar at least with, you know, the base characters from the story. So having a breakdown of them uh, sounds fascinating and hopefully people could learn about their new favourite character, uh, maybe someone more in the wings of the narrative. Well, yeah, uh, we're trying to mix up sort of your Gollums and your Frodo's and your Gandalf's, your big hitter A-list characters with occasional episodes on, you know, shadow facts. Like, so we'll do an hour on Gandalf's horse. So <laughs> if, if a whole hour about Gandalf's horse is your jam, then come along to Not Another Fucking Elf. That's uh, that's what we do. I hope the Shadow Facts episode is the pilot. Is that what you're launching with? No, that's like about episode 10. <laughs> <laughs> you're going to wait for Shadow Facts. I think we're going to launch with Gollum because that he is just A-list in, in Ring's world and... I think one of the best characters. So yeah, start with the best, work your way gradually through to Shadow Facts. Wonderful horse. I mean, travels very fast, has a great history. He really does. He's one of the Meras who the House of Earl, uh, you know, the people from Rohan, they, they tamed him back, way back when. And he's descended from this horse that like killed the first guy to attempt to tackle him. So he's from a sort of legacy of murderer horses but in a good way in a fun heroic way like you know you're not going to get him down he will rebel you thought we were joking about the shadow facts episode listeners but it sounds like it's going to be a cracking installment <laughs> oh no that was very real <laughs> <laughs> obviously you're a fan of tolkien those films are quite long usually when you're deciding what to watch at home does a film's runtime ever come into your decision making process are you just standing outside the cinema you know looking at the listings to see which is the shortest film you could potentially watch that day absolutely i i think i'm quite a fitting guest for this podcast because i used to commission short films for channel four that had an average runtime of four minutes and I also exec three series of the BBC iPlayer Strand Inside Cinema. Those are mostly about six minutes long, six minute long documentaries. And then in my work as a producer, I've produced Charlie Shackleton's trilogy of essay films, Beyond Clueless, Fear Itself and The Afterlight, I think all of which are about 90 minutes or less. I think Fear Itself might be 91, but, but yeah. I love a snappy runtime. Um, boy, howdy, I, I really do. And it's the same when I go to something like Cannes, if all other things being equal, like, you know, I don't, let's say I haven't heard of two directors and I don't know the cast, which happens more often than you might think at festivals. You're going by things like what time does it start and how long is it? And if, you know, if I could squeeze in two 90 minutes in the time that it, takes to watch that one really long one obviously i'm going to go for the 290 minutes which is a shame because it does obviously mean that occasionally you miss out on like a really good meaty beast but yeah i i do love a 90 minute or under film what a dream guest <laughs> you're speaking my language especially when there's you're presented with so much choice at something like a film festival or, or you know even on a more day-to-day -day basis for me like just browsing through netflix like what's the shortest one yeah or on a flight you can you can fit in maybe three movies if they're 90 minutes long and that that's always a treat that's uh yeah i always feel quite proud of myself if i can fit in like if I can really max out the time spent on the flight with films, mm -hmm. so if I do this and if I don't go to the bathroom then and I, I only eat a quick meal, I could probably get four films in. Four films, maybe maybe and an episode of the US office, like oh, just yeah, really do that. stacking it. <laughs> <laughs> hoping they don't do that thing where they pause the entertainment for an announcement because you've really timed it very precisely and there's no time. 
But it's difficult with Tolkien adaptations because they're mostly quite long, as you say. The Peter Jackson's are long, the Ralph Bakshi is long, the Return of the King 1980 animated Rankin-Bass is not long, but it is over 90 minutes. I think you've done a very good job there of whittling it down. Can you please tell us what film we're going to be talking about today, Catherine? So we are going to be talking about the 1977 Rankin-Bass Hobbit adaptation. A wondrous animated version of J.R.R. Tolkien's classic about the magical world of Middle-earth and the adventures of the lovable Bilbo Baggins, featuring the voices of Orson Bean and John Huston. But already, already, John Huston being on the on the voice cast list for this 1977 direct-to-video children's film, that's already got to be pricking your curiosity a little bit, hasn't it? I, th- I was thinking again about why I kind of kind of like this film kind of love this film kind of think this film is really bad all at once um and i think it's because it's it's a curio and there are so we said this in we said this earlier there are so many films available to us now you can watch some of the greatest films of all time at the click of a button and you can also watch a right load of old bland shit that, you know, deserves to just be called content rather than films, because that's all that it is. There's like a lot of that about. Some of it feels like it's been conjured by an algorithm. So in that context of kind of masterpieces and filler material that's very predictable, I've kind of found myself becoming more and more attracted to the curios and the oddities, those films that are sort of not necessarily good they're not necessarily bad but they're more like how did that happen how did those elements come together this was not the work of an algorithm or a market researcher and the 1977 animated hobbit is a proper example of of a kind of a how did that happen film in lots of different ways that we can talk about i totally agree with you i'd rather have something sort of try and fail than try to do exactly you know what the algorithm said it should do we get stuff that feels like that and i think the uh, the hobbit feels handmade not just because of the animation style but you know someone really you know put a lot of work into this into turning the hobbit into a i guess a musical tv special to the point where i mean in terms of the tv form they've actually written a theme tune for it in addition to the songs that tolkien wrote in the book uh and, and, and you know all sorts of choices like that you know it was a, it was a choice choices were made i don't think there are any other films where you're going to find the likes of otto preminger as thranduil the elf like opposite John Huston as Gandalf and Orson Bean as Bilbo. Like the voice cast alone is such a weird motley collection because it's not all these top tier names either. It's also people like the guy who voiced Tony the Tiger for from the Kellogg's adverts for five decades. It's yeah, it's a real, a real kind of gumbo of of voice, vocal talent. Professional voice actors. The voice of Scooby Doo is in this movie um, <laughs> as well. But then you're like, uh, we can't really find anyone for. Gandalf. Should we try John Huston? Let's just try John Huston. Let's get John Huston. I always picture John Huston in his role in, you know, Chinatown and somehow that crossing over with Gandalf. It's like, yeah, I don't know. To be the guy who made the Maltese Falcon and Prizzy's Honor and the Treasure of the Sierra Madre, all of the films that John Huston made in his career as a director and then for that somehow to also translate to being in this 
kind of janky version of The Hobbit where, you know, he has to say lines like, oh, I wrote this one down because it really made me laugh. Oh, Bilbo Baggins, if you really understood that ring, as someday members of your family not yet born will, <laughs> then you'll realise this story has not ended, but is only beginning. Just uh, subtly setting up a sequel there. In a just, definitely... just as Tolkien wrote on the page. <laughs> just as it was in the book. Just as it absolutely wasn't in the book. I mean, the fact of how how angry all of this would have made Tolkien is also very funny to me. Um, like, absolutely love the guy. But if you read his letters, and you should, because they're a lot of fun. They're collated by Humphrey Carpenter and his son, Christopher Tolkien. And that he's constantly going off on one about proposed film treatments. So what he would have made, I don't think he saw this because it would be in the letters. <laughs> <laughs> but there's, you know, there's an extensive demolition from him that goes on for about 10 pages of a proposed version of Lord of the Rings uh, that is probably in a sort of similar space to this Hobbit adaptation that actually got made. So, yeah, I, I would really love to have been a, a fly on the wall at a Tolkien House screening of the 1977 Hobbit. What do you think of this take on the story? You know, Does this film do the original novel justice? The shortest answer I could give would be no. <laughs> <laughs> But like I say, it is a curio. It is something that I think if you like the book that you should watch. I guess another interesting question is the Peter Jackson Hobbit films. I prefer this to, to those. I really do not like the Peter Jackson Hobbit films as much. You know, I, I love the Peter Jackson Lord of the Rings films, but for me, there's a big fall off a high cliff after that. And there are lots of ways in which the Rankin-Bass Hobbit I think is much more charming than, you know, the the very high-tech versions that we got in the 21st century. Bilbo is quite childlike in this, which I'm not sure is true to the book, but it works quite well for a children's animated holiday film. And there's lots of quirky little why-did-they-do-that touches that really appeal to my sense of mischief, I guess. The way that Smog looks a bit like a cat is fun. He looks sort of like... Snarf from the Thundercats, which I think Thundercats is also a Rankin Bass, and so maybe maybe that makes sense. Um, and it's also, I guess, that thing of the animation was mostly done sort of outsourced to Japanese studios. It was outsourced to a Japanese studio called Topcraft, many of whose animators and founders later went on to be very important in the world of Japanese animation, notably through Studio Ghibli. So again, maybe it makes sense that the dragon in The Hobbit looks more like a kind of Ghibli dragon or I think there's also a little bit of Falcor from the never-ending story in there too. <laughs> Definitely describing Smog as a, as a cat is so apt. Um, I think that was on my notes. <laughs> Smog is a cat. It's a really nice take on the character because it is so different to the illustrations we get in the books and the later depiction of that character in, in the Jackson version as well. Like I don't know if I sort of it's not how I maybe imagined him but I also just liked that it was different yeah yeah you see exactly the same thing with the goblins which again have a kind of vaguely feline aspect and kind of crossed with a toad they're like sort of cat toads the goblins in this and again that does keep it in this fairly fantastical realm that's quite nice for something on this scale and you also avoid you know, what has been said about the orcs in Peter Jackson's versions which is that there's a possible sort of racial critique there he's given them these kind of dreadlock 
top knots that in the context of them being an evil you know species of creature is possibly unfortunate and by making the goblins in this animated version purely these mad cat toad creatures that bear a, a resemblance to like no human being that has ever lived i think you take it out of that territory and into the world of this is a fun story for children what i find sometimes with a an under 90 minute film is you have to be quite efficient with your storytelling choices and actually just by making all of the different character types so clear really helps considering this is you know this is a family holiday special it's designed to be broadcast on tv you might not get people from the very beginning of the story but you could quickly you know watch this halfway through and still work out who's who and what's what and, and, and all that sort of business. Yeah, and they've done a lovely job, I will say as well, in, in like in a straightforward way, not in just a way that makes me laugh, with all of the background art, the sort of the wide shots of things like mountains and forests, all of that's done really quite beautifully. I feel like that's they've paid attention there to some of the original art that Tolkien put together for The Hobbit when it was published in 1937. So that's that feels like a really nice nod. And then you zoom into the characters and they're, <laughs> they're in some other space of imagination. Yeah, the backgrounds are, are really beautiful. And one of the first shots of the film is the Hobbit hole, Bilbo Baggins' house. It's so detailed. And it is basically what Peter Jackson brought to life in, in the live action films. Yeah, there's a lot of chat about him being in, about Jackson being influenced by the 1978 Bakshi version of Lord of the Rings that kind of covers up to more or less the end of, end of Helm's Deep and then never went any further. But I think he had a look at this as well. The door of Bag End in particular looks to me like someone has been fairly directly inspired and that's a really nice nod to the work that had come before in this space. Hello, I'm Martin. I'm Sam. And together we host Song by Song, a show about the music of Tom Waits. Each week we welcome a guest and pick an interval track by an artist who isn't Tom Waits to listen to. What does that sound like, Sam? Well, do you enjoy Alice Fraser on the Bugle podcast? We talk to her about the music of Eartha Kitt and Madonna. Are you a fan of John Ronson, author of The Psychopath Test and Frank? He brought his deep knowledge of Bruce Springsteen to the show. Hear all these wonderful guests and brilliant songs by searching for Song by Song on your preferred podcasting platform or by visiting songbysongpodcast.com. Talking about how this is a bit of a curio, the production method is very curious. Uh, you know, Rankin Bass, famous for stop motion animated work and then sort of dabbling with licensed TV shows like the Osmonds TV show doing animated versions of them through the um, you know yeah largely Japanese animation studios like Topcraft it's just, how does that all come about it's so fascinating and I guess at the time it isn't this prestige story it's a children's book and it makes total sense to bring it to life like a Saturday morning cartoon, or be, be it a long one, like it probably felt like the right thing to do in the 70s. Yeah, definitely. I think in the context of of that and what the brief was and what some of their other animations look like, this is kind of the, the top tier stuff. <laughs> they've, you know, they've done a really nice job with a lot of the character design, not all of it, but I think the villains in particular come off quite well. Gollum is... I don't know, he divides people in his incarnation here, but I think he fits the golem of the Hobbit. And I think it's also interesting to note that when Tolkien was writing The Hobbit in 1937, 
he wasn't as sure as he later would become what Gollum's origins were. Uh, we know if we've seen The Lord of the Rings that he's a kind of actually sort of hobbit that has lived far too long. He's lived over 500 years because of his possession of the ring, but he starts as a hobbit. And so that has to be recognisable in any Lord of the Rings version of Gollum. But when Tolkien was writing Gollum in 1937, he hadn't come up with any of the ring stuff yet. Like the ring itself was supposed to be just this trinket that Bilbo picks up along the way. It wasn't supposed to then go on to become you know, the one ring and acquire a capital letter and belong to the Dark Lord Sauron. It was it was just a, a bit of a fun kids story travel moment. And Gollum, similarly, in the, actually in the first editions of The Hobbit, stop me if I'm going too deep here with my Hobbit lore, but in the first editions of The Hobbit, Gollum promises to give Bilbo the ring as a present if if he wins the riddle game, which the Gollum that we know and love from Lord of the Rings would never have done. So Tolkien fixed it in subsequent editions. And that's where this idea of Bilbo lying to Gandalf and the dwarves about how he got hold of the ring comes from. Tolkien then later positions the first edition of The Hobbit as the lies that Bilbo told about how he got his his hands on the rings he's always doing that sort of meta stuff Tolkien it's one of the reasons I like his work is he's always thinking about where did this story come from who is telling us it and coming up with reasons for that that's such a big through line especially for the character of Bilbo like in 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 this film version they he even says you know I'm going to write uh, about my holiday <laughs> um, is it an unexpected holiday is that what they, they call um, he calls the, the journey in this version uh, of the film Hobbit's holiday there and back again well yeah he keeps referring to his the log he's keeping for Gra- Gandalf which <laughs> I don't know why they've called it that so as much as I can find quite nice things to say about some of the character design the script i will say is pretty atrocious it's this weird mixture of lines they've lifted directly from the book great that's all fine and then stuff that they've rewritten to just suit the sort of version of the plot and i guess their version of kind of how to make it all dramatic but it results in some very weird little moments it's the same in the rankin bass Return of the King. In fact, I think it's arguably worse in Return of the King because they've got a lot more American voices. So you have a lot of like, hail, proud Mary. Nay, <laughs> you did not be here. You should not. Like, it's all very that. And it's, yeah, quite a disaster. But even in this one, so I noted down a little exchange where Thorin is saying, hush, you are no coward, my friend. I am sorry I so named you. Bilbo Baggins replies, this is not important. Then Thorin says, I was wrong. You did understand war. It was I who did not until now, which honestly sounds like it was translated by a computer. (laughs) (laughs) It's the Google Translate version of the script. (laughs) Really that. It's like when you get one of those pirated DVDs that that is then translated back into English. Um, It's got that sort of vibe to it, the dialogue. But then, you know, as someone who's consumed more of this stuff than is probably good for me or humanly necessary it's fun to see the quirky versions of it where it went slightly wrong for me it feels like the version on and it obviously is condensed in time you know this is a lovely under 90 minute runtime 78 minutes long but it feels like the fast forward version of the hobbit like everything just plays a little bit too fast not necessarily because it has to fit the tv slot but i think there's doesn't feel like there's very much jeopardy and there's not a huge amount of character development because they just sort of scoot along and it's like 
you I think you could tell this story in a under 90 minute runtime and it still have some emotional heft. In this film version, they don't choose to do that. They just sort of brush off these very traumatic experiences and get on to the very next thing. It kind of reminds me of how a child tells a story before you learn about how to kind of link things effectively in and, and sort of craft the storytelling a little bit. So to pick one example, because I completely agree with you, this is what it does all the way through. One example of that, I think, is when the dwarves and the Hobbit are lost in the woods quite near the beginning in the roast mutton chapter. They're grumbling and they think they see a light in the distance and they have a little debate about whether they should go and investigate the light. And eventually they're like, okay, Bilbo, you go and you go and see what it is. And he creeps up to the light and realises it's a fire with sort of three large persons sitting around it arguing. And he realises that they're trolls and it's a quite a kind of classic fairy tale set up in in the 1977 version i think i'm right in saying that it's just that someone says look trolls and that's how they introduce that whole section there's no business about like what's that light in the distance and and should we go and and take a look and should we be careful because it could be bad they just literally say look trolls the trolls themselves are like really nicely designed and they've gotten rid of some of the slightly iffy comedy cockney aspects that is maybe not the strongest part of talking of what Tolkien wrote which is all very you know ear but like his, yeah. uh, his idea of how Cockneys <laughs> speak which is not how actual Cockneys speak at all but uh the I guess the the version that a 1930s professor of philology at Oxford believes to be correct I think a similar thing happens when the dwarves are taken prisoner by the wood elves mm. and um, I think it's a narration line or something Bilbo says but they just casually allude to the fact they've been kept prisoners for weeks um, in the dungeon and you're like as a list viewer you're like I have no sense of that apart from that line you've just told me like you haven't earned that it feels like a mild inconvenience in the film but of course it actually grinds the whole company to a halt for such a long time yeah yeah it's it's a really um, formative episode for Bilbo in the book he's on his own he's used the ring to escape he's creeping about in the film it's you know Otto Preminger turns up as the king of the wood elves which is hilarious on its own count uh, there's also the design of the wood elves I think they're much better on kind of straight villains in this Rankin Bass version of the Hobbit the heroes often look a bit weird the wood elves certainly look completely mad and very very different from Elrond it's like they're a whole other type of thing so I don't know whether that it's just that they're wood elves and that he's you know half elven like they've decided to make him more human looking or what that is but I suspect it's not that I suspect it's just that it was probably assigned to a different team of people and it, <laughs> there was just no oversight yeah I guess if you don't know if you're just going on the page like oh these are bad elves they're taking our heroes prisoner make them look a little bit evil give them long legs and like green loincloths that'd be lovely like leafy loincloths uh oh yeah I thought the elves were a little bit I mean weird looking but also a bit boring because they were there's a lot of elves on on camera but they're all just like it's copy and paste of of of, of each other's uh, of every other elf and it's the same with the goblins i suppose but the design is a bit more interesting yeah and it's a waste of otto preminger as well having him play thranduil and uh the director of of, of laura and a guy who was in stalag 17 and then you've got him as a wood elf and you just throw it away this little episode Misty mountains cold. 
magic in that music. And it moves through me. You feel the love of beautiful things. To go and see the great mountains, hear the pine trees and waterfalls. To wear a sword instead of a walking stick. Just once. They embrace the songs in this. This is a musical, and actually, the, the you know, the, the, a lot of the marketing talks about it as being a musical holiday special. And of course, Tolkien wrote lots of songs in 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 the book, and and here we get to hear the songs. Yeah, it's almost like in the live action Peter Jackson versions. There's all, particularly in Lord of the Rings, I guess. There's almost a little bit of embarrassment around the fact that there are so many songs because they're often relegated to extended scenes or just not in there at all um which i mean it's fair enough like the the peter jackson lord of the rings films i love them but they're already quite long and if you if you included every song that is in the book uh they'd be twice as long we don't need any musical numbers in there andy circus has a good old go on them in the audio book i mean he can't really sing but he absolutely goes for it his bombadil is like popping off with full bombadil nonsense singing the whole time speaking of characters who didn't quite make it into film versions i missed Bjorn, the the skin changer in this story the werebear i i love that character and i it's very yeah very apparent early on in this film that they're not doing that character uh, which is a great shame were there any sort of big omissions for you well for me the same actually Bjorn. i think is it's a shame not to get him in there I guess I get why they do it. I think because basically it's a way station. It's a bit like Lorien in in Lord of the Rings. It's it's a nice place to go and be for a while and be safe. And Tolkien always builds those in, which I used to find so reassuring and lovely when I was a kid reading this stuff. And it was like, oh my goodness, we've just nearly been like burned alive in some trees, or Gandalf's been taken down by a Balrog. Like, oh, now we're going to get to the chill out zone and everything's going to be okay for a bit. Um, and Bayon, I guess he's he's kind of chill out zone. He's also, it's one of those instances where there's a lot of business about the number of dwarves that there are that I don't think would play on screen, but it's this thing of of kind of going along two by two and trying not to alarm him by all showing up uh, 13 of them all in one go a bit like what happens at Bilbo's Hobbit Hole right at the start of the book they don't really pay more than lip service to that in this either I guess because just having extended introduction sequences for 13 characters is a bit much I think they did it quite well here where they all sort of assemble outside and greet him in a very pleasant sort of manner I do love Gandalf's first appearance which is like they almost skip a few frames of animation and he just appears from behind a tree. He's absolutely there. He's suddenly there. You don't get all of that kind of nice stuff where Bilbo is sort of sizing him up and deciding that he's perhaps not quite his sort and he'd like him to move along now. There's all of that (laughs) banter with Gandalf in the book. I also, on a more, I guess, serious note, miss all the stuff with the Arkenstone, which in the book is where there's this large gem that's part of the horde that Smog has got hold of. I know people say Smog or Smaug. Out of deference to the 1977 ranking bass, I'm going to say Smog like they do for the purposes of this podcast. Um, so yeah, part of Smog's horde is this gem, the Arkenstone, and it's the one thing that Thorin cares about. So Bilbo, in a kind of fulfilment of this idea of himself as the burglar being fulfilled in a way they they couldn't have foreseen from the beginning, takes that gem to the elven king as a bargaining chip in an attempt to avoid war, which is 
I think a nice little prefiguring of that idea of hobbits as sort of yes simple rustic suburban characters but who then get caught up in events kind of beyond um, what they could possibly have imagined at the start of the book and we see that in Lord of the Rings as well of course and it's a little bit more I don't know political or realist than you know hijinks with giant spiders and trolls and things that we've been that we've been enjoying in the build-up to that last section of the book. It adds some complexity to Thorin's character as well uh, when he you know, has an about face and you know, becomes a, a very different person and you know is, is, is sort of doubling down on you know, being king under the mountain uh, there. And again, this I feel like this film does the third act of the book a, a great sort of injustice. You know, again, it's like, oh, there was a big army, but it was fine. And it really does feel like someone has, and I don't exactly mean this as criticism of Rankin Bass and their talented team, but I slightly do as well. But it, it feels like what you would get if you asked a six-year-old who'd just read The Hobbit to tell you about The Hobbit. There's that slightly kind of a child's book report feel about it because I think it's the kind of thing that a kid might leave out because it is a bit complicated and confusing when Thorin is sort of who was a hero before and now what? He's not. He doesn't like Bilbo anymore, but then by the end he does. It's the kind of... Uh, interpersonal detail that I could easily see a kid skimming over and so maybe it's been done because they think oh this is for kids and so we'll leave out the things that are less likely to be grasped by a young audience but then I don't know what do you want guys like The Hobbit is one of the most successful children's books of all time and kids love that (laughs) yeah it's not like people are uh yeah (laughs) been turned off by The Hobbit even you know this is uh like 50 years after The Hobbit was published when this film was made and it's mm. still going straight, you know, it, it was a huge property then still. It wasn't like this little unknown sort of entity. But uh, yeah, I think maybe just a, just a brief for the audience if it's a holiday Christmas special for all the family. But then, then it's baffling that only six of the dwarves survive in the end. So there's been this dwarf massacre, whereas in the book only three of them die. Mm. So they've significantly upped the number of dwarves who snuff it, which is a baffling detail to me. I guess maybe it was to sort of up the stakes, but it's certainly not a child-friendly addition. Like half of these guys that you presumably have come to have some affection for across the preceding runtime, like those guys are dead now. There we go. We have the Rankin Bass production of The Hobbit in the 90 Minutes or Less Film Festival. Thank you very much, Catherine, for bringing this film onto the show and to our prestigious film lineup. Well, thank you very much for inviting me onto the prestigious podcast and allowing me to be part of your even more prestigious hypothetical film festival. Will you ever do a film festival for? Well, it's a it's a big it's a big question. It would be very easy to schedule because we wouldn't be asking cinemas for very much of their of their time <laughs> uh, to put on, and, and the program would slot together in nice half half hour and a half chunks. So maybe maybe one day but if we were to put on a real life film festival and you could screen the hobbits is there anywhere you'd like to screen it any way you'd like to present this film what i would want to do is put it on at the upp in oxford because that is a lovely old cinema in oxford that i've been to many times and of course oxford is also where J.R.R. tolkien lived for a large period of his life He also lived in Birmingham, so you could go to the Electric, which is a very, very nice cinema in Birmingham. Um, And then he also lived in Bournemouth, which doesn't have a good cinema. So... (laughs) (laughs) And if you were to maybe... uh, J.R. Tolkien loves writing about food. 
uh, and the character, the central character, loves to eat. Is, is there a particular snack you'd like to serve with your fantasy screening of The Hobbit? Well, elvish whey bread. If we can get some lembus bread or some sort of lembus bread approximation, I think that for me, the rosemary and salt crackers from Asda that you can get, like to me, that's what lembus bread tastes like. So I would get rosemary and salt crackers and maybe some fancy cheeses. I mean, you can, if you want to do themed talking food, like there's obviously loads to choose from because you've got the whole of Bilbo Baggins larder. So if we could maybe get a bottle of the old Winyards, that kind of business going on, or just a cup of tea. Bilbo loves a cup of tea. Oh, that sounds great. Cup of tea. Ultimate Picture Palace, some Asda <laughs> Lemnus bread. <laughs> Asda Lemnus bread, rosemary <laughs> and salt crackers, yeah. Uh, this has been a paid endorsement from Asda.com. It has not. I received no money from Asda for this endorsement. Yet. Wait till you mention it on, <laughs> on Not Another Fucking Elf. We'll add them in on, on social. <laughs> uh, that's pretty... Okay, well, say if we do do a real-life film festival, I'm going to Oxford... I'm going to ask the good people who run the Ultimate Picture Palace and we're going to show this film on the big screen. Because this was made for TV, it probably has had very few theatrical screenings. We'll bring it back to its rightful home, <laughs> the way Tolkien would have wanted. Yeah, maybe. I mean, you could even double bill it with that Return of the King that's uh, done in the same style, but slightly more of a nightmare. Seeing that Rankin Bass basically went on to make the Return of the King in, in the early 1980s with the same team. I'm, uh, I'm intrigued. Yeah, you could triple bit. Do, do this 1977 Hobbit, then do the then pop out to Ralph Bakshi for what effectively covers Fellowship of the Ring and the Two Towers. And then you go back to Rankin Bass for the Return of the King. Um, we probably haven't got time to talk now about why that's the case, but that is what happened. That would make a lovely little treble. That's a good follow-on, uh, listeners, if you'd like to sort of carry on your Rankin-Bass Middle-Earth journey. Thank you so much, Catherine, for talking to us today and spending a little bit time of uh, in, in Middle-Earth with us, bringing us uh, the Hobbit to the 90 Minutes Less on first. Thank you so much for having me, Sam Clements. It's been an absolute joy. Where can people get hold of Not Another Fucking Elf? If you have a look for at Not Another Elf on, on the socials, that should bring it up. Or if you Google Not Another Fucking Elf, I mean, you'll probably get a lot of clips to the quote from Hugo Dyson, but maybe sticking podcast in there uh, that should bring it to light in whatever your podcast platform of choice is we'll include a link to the in the show notes i'm looking forward to listening i'm going to be an avid listener i'm going to be a mega fan i'm going to be there from day one you are a sweetheart and a comrade and a member of the fellowship of the podcast thank you for listening If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe on your podcatcher of choice. You can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, or if you've got a mo, share an episode with your friends. Every recommendation helps. You can contact us on our website, 90minfilmfest.com, and on Twitter and Instagram, at 90minfilmfest. The podcast is produced by me, Sam Clements, and Louise Owen. It's edited by Louise Owen, with sound mixing and additional editing by Luke Smith. Our music is by Martin Ostwick, and our artwork is by Sam Gilby. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. We're a proud member of the Stripped Media Network.